Hi, I'm Peter Rao. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome to Counterbalance. We're joined today by Jonathan Schachter, a colleague here at Hudson Institute and a veteran of all things uh, Israeli national security. He came to us from Prime Minister Netanyahu's personal office where he focused on national security issues as an advisor to the Prime Minister. Jonathan, welcome to, as Mike Duran always likes to remind our listeners, the fastest growing podcast in the world. Thank you, Peter. Michael, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Jonathan, I've been uh, speaking to uh, pretty high-ranking, very senior Europeans in recent days, and they are less than keen to talk about the JCPOA in light of what's happened uh, in Iran. You've had a piece uh, that just published in recent days about uh, the sunset of the missile embargo under the terms of the JCPOA. And uh, I have to say, I find it rather symbolic uh, watching the German chancellor being scurried off of his plane at Ben-Gurion Airport to a bunker or shelter, uh, and the rest of his delegation lying flat on the runway before takeoff uh, because missiles are flying overhead, while at the same time the, the, Iranian, uh, the missiles. Iranian missiles are flying overhead, while at the same time the missile embargo sunsets. And oh, wouldn't it be, uh, wouldn't it be nice if, uh, if Germany just had the powers to actually undo that missile embargo as one of the E3 states that uh, is part of the JCPOA. Oh, wait, it does have those powers. So um, it seems to me like we're having a bit of a uh, uh, disconnect between uh, what's happening on the ground and where Western policy is. With that very open-ended introduction, I will let, I'll let you riff a little bit on the piece that you wrote, which really gets at the heart of the matter, which is the JCPOA. Thanks, Peter. You know, I think the, the, the ironies uh, surrounding this issue are, are, are sort of staggering. So you have this week, you have, uh, as you mentioned, the German chancellor uh, showing up in Israel to show his sympathy and his support. He spoke very powerfully uh, about uh, Germany's uh, responsibility in uh, making sure that uh, Israel can defend itself. You have the president uh, there on Wednesday, also, um, you know, in a very, uh, I think, emotional and and strong message uh, to the Israelis. The following day, you have the British Prime Minister there to show his support. Uh, and I, it, I, I read that Macron uh, is supposed to be there in the coming days or weeks to do the same. And you have these these you know, these these demonstrations of support, these strong words of support. They put out a joint statement together with the um, with the Italian Prime Minister already on the 9th of October, just two days after the attack. Uh, and yet, on the day that the president is in. Tel Aviv um, is the day that, under the terms, as, as you said, of the JCPOA, uh, the missile embargo on Iran expires. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a stunning contradiction. And it's it's one thing to point to the, the contradiction in terms of words of support and, and trying to help Israel protect itself on the one hand and, and the, the, the making it easier for Iran to produce and proliferate missiles on the other. But this isn't just an Israeli interest or a Middle Eastern issue because the Iranians, as you know, have been providing drones to Russia for their war in Ukraine. And uh, according to some reports, the Iranians have withheld the transfer of missiles until 
uh, this embargo expired. And not coincidentally, the Russians put out a statement this week announcing that in light of the expiration of, of uh, these restrictions, they are no longer prevented from exchanging missile technology, which I presume is in both directions with Iran. So it's a European interest as much as it is uh, you know, an Israeli interest or a Middle Eastern interest or, or anything else. That's a, one of the most amazing things is that the, the two arenas, Middle East and Europe, they're now so intertwined. And the, uh, and the, the thing that shows it most clearly is the Iranian drone technology. The Ukrainian military on the front lines does not have adequate air defense uh, protection because the limited air defense systems that they have are protecting civilian population centers from Iranian drones. So that the the supply of Iranian drones to Russia has shifted the balance of power, military power in Europe. Clearly, it has shifted the balance of power all over the Middle East. You'd think there would be calls, significant calls, beyond this podcast, beyond the, you know a few voices in Washington think tanks. There'd be significant calls coming from governments to have a unified Western policy. It's, uh, it's quite amazing that there aren't. Jonathan, there were in the days after the brutal terror attack, I think wonderful images of sympathy across Europe. We saw the Brandenburg Gate illuminated with the Israeli flag, the Berlamont, which is the, of course, commission presidency in Brussels, illuminated with the Israeli flag. All across Europe uh, and in the U.S., I think we saw strong, robust statements from, like you mentioned, uh, uh, the German chancellor had a had a tweet that was rather, I think, direct and powerful. But as I see these expressions of sympathy, um, uh, in a way, and this might be a dark analogy, but it, it takes me back a little bit to the days after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, because I think were you around then? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Over a hundred years ago, I've been uh, I've been eating healthy uh, Israeli food all my life, Mediterranean fare, and so here I am. Uh, you look great. At a sprightly age of 120. Um, so when I was in almost in college and treatments, that's yeah. Right. And when I witnessed that assassination in Sarajevo uh, in uh, in 1914, in the days after, there was enormous expressions of sympathy for the Austrian Hungarian, uh, for the Austrian Hungarian complaint about Serb nationalism, et cetera. And had the Austrians moved quickly, um, I doubt that we would have seen, and I think there's a lot of historical agreement upon this, experts who studied the immediate diplomacy in the summer of 1914, the alliance systems beginning to unravel, or should I say, take hold. And um, of course, we had a series of declarations of war and then the conflagration that followed. Of course, I'm not suggesting that this is going to lead to a world war, but isn't it important that Israel move quickly, um, given that those expressions of sympathy as time passes are um, are likely to fade somewhat? Or do you think sort of a deliberative approach is appropriate and there's going to be sufficient international backing for Israel to be able to operate at its pace over time. I think the, the, the time and intensity factors are interrelated in the sense that um, Prime Minister Netanyahu made clear very quickly that um, what was coming was not uh, he said, you know, this isn't uh, an operation. This isn't another round of fighting. This is war. And um, it's going to be very difficult and it's going to take um, it's going to take a long time. And um, so 
I think the Israelis, it's not so much a question of acting fast because it's going to take time, uh, even if they had had been in a position to begin ground operations immediately, um, it would still take time. It still looks like it's going to be a matter of uh, weeks and months, not days, uh, to complete the uh, their their aims, which we can talk about in a moment too, because those aims have become clearer over the last several days. But it, where these things uh, overlap, I think, with the question of support is right now. I think you point out correctly there have been very strong statements of support. Um, in some ways, right now is it's the easiest phase to do that. Um, People are very upset. The reactions are very emotional. The the uh, the images are um, uh, are shocking, and I think people's reactions are are understandable. What will happen is as um, it, so in that sense, it, it's sort of easiest to be supportive right now. What will happen is as as I think the war goes on and as. Uh, the ground uh, operation becomes more intense and the costs begin to accumulate, I think the pressure on those leaders to put pressure on Israel to stop will increase. And so you have this, this situation where at that point, I'm talking about two weeks from now, four weeks from now, two months from now, the need for that support will be much greater and the pressure not to give it will also be much greater. And so then I think it will be um, the real moral challenge for, I think, the president and for the leaders in Europe. Jonathan, you you seeded a question by saying that the war aims are more clear and we'll get to that. So go ahead. You, clearly, you have a Something you want to say about the war aims? I wasn't sure if you meant seated with a C or seated with an S just now, but I. Uh, I'll, now look, I'll 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 leave that with strategic ambiguity. Okay. So in in the initial days, and I think Mike, you and I, uh, with our colleague John Kasapu, did a uh, we did a video very quickly after the uh, after the attack, and and we were talking about what the aims could be, and in recent days, um, those aims have become, uh, I think, much clearer. Uh, they've talked about the destruction of Hamas and Islamic Jihad's military capability. They've also talked about uh, the dismantling of Hamas's governance capability so that they will not rule in uh, in Gaza after this. Um, and then just in the last day or two, I noticed another twist to this in some of the statements that have been made, uh, which makes it sound like Israel um, wants to end this having washed its hands of Gaza altogether, uh, which I think has, uh, says a lot. Um, and it also is, I think, an early indicator that Israel is going to be shifting responsibility for Gaza to somebody else. To the Palestinian Authority. Is that, the, is that your impression, that that's their idea? That's not necessarily my impression, because um, even in the areas where you have the Palestinian Authority today, you have a Palestinian authority that is either unwilling or unable to do what it's supposed to. So you see Palestinian authority complains all the time, for example, about what they call Israeli incursions into area A in, uh, you know, in the, into the, the, the large Palestinian cities to, uh, to go after Hamas and Islamic Jihad terrorists. But the only reason that Israel does that is because the Palestinian authority doesn't. 
So I'm not sure that Israel is looking to expand the Palestinian authorities. So who's uh, the who's the someone else? I, I I can't. Surely not Iran. Not Iran and not a Greco-Turkish condominium. Who out there? I, you can't have Fijian peacekeepers. We see peacekeepers in in South Lebanon are going home for the holidays right now. What? Who could possibly do it? It's a it's a good question. I think it's it it may be some. I don't want to speculate too much, um, but you know it could be. Uh, I, I expect we'll see some um, uh, some role, possibly not just for uh, for Israel's neighbors, but also you know immediate neighbors, but maybe for some of the more distant neighbors uh, in the Arab world. But I remember when uh, when the Israelis withdrew from uh, uh, from Sinai. They they tried to convince the Egyptians to take Gaza, and the, the Egyptian response was, you know, reading between the lines, "Are you crazy? We don't want it." No, of course they don't. Of course they don't. Um, but you know, the the <laughs> I think the Israeli policy is is coming into fully into line with Egyptian policy in that regard. Yeah, a, my point is that I, I understand that the Israelis want to completely wash their hands of it, but you you can't cha- you can't wash your hands of geography. Well, I suppose that that raises the natural follow-up question, which is, do you think these are the correct war aims? I think, um, at least initially, they they seem uh, like sound uh, war aims, and of course, um, these things are fluid. They could, you know, they could expand or contract as things go on, and as we've seen in uh, in other wars, I think, you know, at a minimum, what they've said is that you know Gaza should not be a uh, a security threat to Israel and specifically to the border areas of Israel. Although today it's, you know, they're sending rockets not just to the south of Israel, but also to the center and even to the north of Israel. And so I think you know, the 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 main goal so far seems to be the the destruction of uh, these groups' military capabilities. And I think that is uh, as sound and should be as, as uncontroversial uh, as it gets. Of course, it, it is controversial. Um, not, not rightly so in my eyes, or I'm sure in anyone's eyes on this uh, podcast. But I was amazed this week at the at two things: the speed with which the claim that Israel had destroyed a hospital with 500 people in it went around the world just immediately, and the extent to which mainstream Western media outlets ran with that uncritically. On its face, it was an absurd claim because you can't count the number of dead immediately. So it was obviously not an accurate statement. Number two, we found out the next morning, not that night, that the ordinance dropped in the parking lot, not on the hospital itself. So, I'm, I'm on my phone and I just looked up Rashida Tlaib's uh, tweet is still up from two days ago saying claiming that Israel just bombed the Baptist hospital, killing 500 Baptist, Palestinians, Baptist hospital, yeah. doctors, children, yeah. patients, just like that. POTUS, this is what happens when you refuse to facilitate a ceasefire and help de-escalate. They, you, but what my, my point here is that um, is that uh, a very large percentage of the world a very large percentage, despite the fact that President Biden has said it didn't happen, that this was this was an, uh, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad errant missile, not uh, an Israeli missile. 
even because the president said it, a very large percentage of the world is absolutely convinced that Israel did it. That's a lamentable fact, but it is a political fact that we have to take into account when uh, when thinking about what is a raid against Israel and American policy. It's uh, It reminded me of the uh, claim uh, in 2002, right? So it's already more than 20 years ago about uh, a massacre that was supposed to have happened in Janine. And of course, oh, right. it, and of course, never happened. And I forgot about that. And it's been proven repeatedly that it never happened. But there are still people who, you know, refer to that as if it were, you know, some sort of fact. But, you know, it's the whole thing is is fascinating because the um, the numbers of casualties that comes out of Gaza come. They, they, they quote the the Gaza Health Ministry. But of course, the Gaza Health Ministry is run by Hamas. And so they take those numbers um, as they're as they're issued, you know, without question and without the ability to to verify any of them. Really, they also um, they never seem to ask, and they're certainly never told when they get those numbers how many of those people, how many of those fatalities are combatants versus non-combatants. Um, d- does that number include the fifteen hundred guys that crossed over into Israel that Israel killed? Uh, in Israeli uh, you know, cities and, and kibbutzim, and there's no real, you know, there doesn't seem to be any ability or interest, frankly, to to get to the bottom of those numbers. They're just they're numbers, and so they put them out, and they say, "Oh, it's from the health ministry," which sounds very official and very uh, uh, reliable. But of course, it's 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 numbers from Hamas. Of course, all this has been pointed out many many times by very reputable people in uh, in very judicious ways. And the media outlets pay no attention. So at this at this point, we have to assume that it. Well, there there are lots of um, to quote Ben Rhodes, twenty seven year olds who literally know nothing who are working in these organizations. But the people at the top of these organizations understand this, and they've made a policy decision not to do anything about it. Yeah, but it's all it's not even just the people who are working in these fields who aren't informed, of course, then it's it's the broader public. And, you know, to your point about how, how deliberate this is, even after the president had made clear that from you know, the intelligence materials that, that he had seen and that had been presented to him, not just by the Israelis, but by, by American intelligence, and then the UK came out also supporting the position, you know, two of the three major newspapers in the United States did still didn't change their headline online. I mean, it, it just right. it, it, and the headline and the headline is more important than anything else. Right. And it's it's seeped down to the broader public and I think really generated a real problem as we've seen in some of the some of the protests and and kind of radical chants that even high school students in the hallways are chanting. Only in San Francisco. In places like San Francisco, I suppose. And but there are rallies in, in, in not yet, but there's a rally in Dallas um uh, um on, on behalf of uh of uh, of the Palestinians amongst amongst other places. Um and um you of course wrote about um the Biden administration's anti Semitism strategy uh, when it was released and noted that it was blind to left wing anti Semitism and focused exclusively on the right wing. And reading that, it took me back to an event I'd done in, in Berlin, uh, perhaps about two or three years ago, where uh, this uh, 
left-wing activist, I have to describe her that way, got up and talked about a rise in anti-Semitism in places like New York City and elsewhere. But she specifically referenced New York City. And uh, the assumption she made was that, of course, this meant that right-wing you know, fascism was on the rise in America or New York City. And I, I thought to myself, I think the people who might be in in New York, um, uh, showing some anti-Semitic tendencies could be perhaps also coming from the progressive left, but it, it never occurred to her. I want to ask you a, a different guy. I just looked at that. That reminded me of uh, back in 2016, there was a swastika painted on a synagogue in Bethesda. And uh, and I, I got uh, an, an email from uh, a left-wing Israeli friend of mine who was, uh, who was extremely upset. Donald Trump himself painted yeah, the swastika. What was, and and I said there are no Nazis in Bethesda. Don't worry, you know. I'm not, and 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 then he he found a thing on Wikipedia which showed the. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I, it, 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 if you think if you know if you know the sociological landscape of Washington D.C., there, yeah. there there's no there's there there are no brown shirts. Uh, yeah. Um, Jonathan, uh, a different question though. So, what do you think this does for the intra-Palestinian power dynamics? Does this in the end, strengthen Fatah? Does it weaken Fatah? I suppose it's all contingent on how the operation plays out. But how do you read um, how do you read the state of intra-Palestinian you know, balance of power in the wake of this attack? To the extent you can, I know that's a difficult question. Yeah, I think you know you've seen in in recent years uh, increasingly intense jockeying for position in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Uh, for what's going to happen after uh, Abu Mazen, right? The day after President Abbas. And so you've seen Hamas try to uh, establish itself and you see um, Fatah and, and, and the, the Palestinian Authority um, weaker and less capable. And I think that the question is, 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 is very important because I don't think you can see this um detached from from intra-Palestinian politics. But I also agree with what you said that I think a lot of things are riding on the outcome of this. Uh, you know, if Hamas loses its ability to govern and its ability to uh to fight, uh and it ends up bringing you know large-scale destruction on uh Gaza and Tragically, casualties uh, amongst the Palestinian population. I don't know that that will increase its uh, appeal to the Palestinian public. At the same time, I don't think anybody has any illusions about the effectiveness uh, or the leadership of Mahmoud Abbas. Um, I think that's true both sort of domestically for the Palestinians, but also internationally. You know, he's been on uh, some of his his, his sort of longstanding. Uh, anti-Semitic views and Holocaust denial have been on greater display uh, over the last year or two, and that's been increasingly pointed out. And on the day of the attack, when you know the international community is waiting for him to condemn uh, Hamas and and what happened uh, in Israel, his first statement was about how the Palestinians have the right to defend themselves. In the end, both of these movements may lose a lot of their luster insofar as there is any left. When you uh, look at the international landscape, there's U.S. support. Who else can Israel rely on relatively securely, whether whether publicly or 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 privately? Because I 
as I look around the landscape of the Middle East, I think the one of the reasons that they chose to launch this attack right this time is that uh, the United States and Israel don't have a very secure alliance network in the region. Do you agree with that? Is what I'm asking. Yeah, as we as we said at the at the opening of of our conversation today, on the one hand, you have these remarkable shows of support from the United States and from the Europeans, and I, I think you know, um, and the president has said and done the right things in uh, the couple of weeks uh, since the attacks. On the one hand, and on the other hand, you know, we talked about the the, the missile embargo, and we talked about uh, Peter. You mentioned uh, the, the the addressing of uh, anti-Semitism in the United States. Uh, the president delivered remarks last night, and one of the things that I've I've noticed consistently in the president's remarks is he keeps asserting that Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people, and yeah, I understand sort of the the, the political and diplomatic uh, necessities of saying such a thing, but I don't think the president is the one who should be saying that. I think that the Palestinian people should be saying that, and I don't hear that. And what I see is these demonstrations, that, you know, that are ostensibly to support the Palestinians, that are to it's totally backwards, right? If these demonstrators really wanted to support the Palestinians, they would be demonstrating against Hamas. But they're not doing that. They're actually, they're doing the opposite. But it, I'm sorry, I, I went astray a little bit there to get back to your question. You know, so I think Israel looks and they, you know, they see their friends in Europe, they see their friends in the United States. Prime Minister Modi made a strong statement uh, after the attack. In terms of countries, by and large, countries have, and their leaders have stood up and said and uh, and done the right things. How long that'll last, I think time will tell. But I think one of the um, one of the lessons and, and one of the, the the tragic failures of this whole episode is that you know, the, 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 the Zionist idea and the idea of having Israel as a safe haven was that, you know, things like this aren't supposed to happen. And not only did it happen, it happened in Israel, which is, I think, a, uh, you know, sort of a, a part of what makes this whole thing so devastating for Israelis and I think for Jews everywhere. I think it's kind of a triple whammy. There was the the military failure. Israelis thought that the their wall and uh, and their deterrent capabilities were much more powerful than they were. And that was a surprise. And then there's what you said, that these images, which come from the darkest days of Jewish history, are not supposed to be associated with Israel and Israeli soil in any way. And then there's the third thing, which is what I was alluding to before, which is the rising anti-Semitism around the world. And I don't want to say no friend, but the a rather tepid response to it by the world. I mean... The number of people that are just gleeful at the uh, at the sight of Jewish blood is really shocking, and the lack of a kind of clear international coalition against it is reminiscent of the 1930s. So you kind of feel like we're were you alive then too, Mike? I, I, um, no, but I, I have lots of friends who wow. who have hummus and collagen and stuff. So I, they tell me what it was like. I was a middle aged man by then, having experienced the Franz Ferdinand assassination. <laughs> but please continue. <laughs> 
this is what I have to deal with here. You know, there's lack of respect in the in, in Hudson. It's uh, shocking. Respect for your elders. All right. What, what, by the way, while, while we're on this aside, this completely frivolous aside, why are you reading books about Franz Ferdinand now? What, 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 what book were you reading that made you think about World War One? Did I say I was reading a book? You Well, I don't know. You were listening to a podcast, reading a book, or maybe your <laughs> wife was reading to your children. What, what, what was it? There's got to be a reason why that was that bullet was in the chamber ready to fire. No, it was um, it was the centennial in, in 2014. I read a bunch of World War One books because I uh, I worked on a book on a, on a social history of the Middle East on World War One at the time ah, okay but anyways back right, to right. Uh, this is this is totally frivolous yeah so i think it's a triple whammy and i it's very um discombobulating uh i think especially for israelis and jews uh but even for me uh i have uh, unfortunately a, a tragic rejoinder which is you know during uh the peak years of the syrian civil war if that's what we're calling it in Israel, you know, we saw what was happening up there. You saw the, you know, the mass murder, the disappearances, the rapes, um, the uh, the the targeting of civilians, hospitals and bakeries, the the the, the torture, the brutality, and um, I would meet with delegations who came uh, who came to uh, to visit, and I would say, you know, Israelis look at what's going on in Syria. And they know exactly what would happen here if they ever let their guard down. And um, I, I don't think any of us ever thought that that would be not just tested, but proven uh, the way that it has. And it's, uh, I think it's really, it, it. like I said, I think it really gets to... Uh, the heart of the, the the function of the state, and so I think that's going to be something that Israelis are are wrestling with for a long time. As you describe the war aims, and I think this has become increasingly clear, clear in recent days. It's uh, obvious now that there's going to be a ground incursion into Gaza of some significance in order to accomplish those goals. I don't think an air campaign is sufficient. What are Hezbollah's calculations? during a ground incursion is there a chance that they come in in a in a big way is it going to be harassing what do you think is um is being discussed as they kind of think through their strategic options in the coming weeks and months so uh mike and i talked about this um uh recently and you know i could make i can make a reasoned case for why hezbollah would get involved and i can make a reasoned case for why they wouldn't get involved but let me address it sort of from the opposite angle, from the angle of what the United States is trying to achieve vis-a-vis Hezbollah. And you see this movement of one and now two carrier groups uh, into the region. Uh, I think it was Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, said that uh, messages had been passed to Iran, both publicly and through uh, private channels, uh, that they shouldn't get involved. And so you, you see an effort uh, by the administration to deter Iran and to deter Hezbollah from getting involved, which I think is is valuable. The problem is that the United States is now trying to overcome a deterrence gap of its own creation. And uh, you have since 
uh, it was uh, it was a few months ago now that the Secretary of Defense uh, was giving testimony in the Senate, and he was asked, you know, how many times have U.S. forces been attacked by Iran or its proxies since January of 2021? And the answer was it was somewhere around 80. Yeah. Um, and then the follow up question was, and how many times has the U.S. responded to those attacks with force? And the answer, I think, was was it four, four. or five? Yes. Four. four. So um, you know, it's clear that there isn't um, you know a lot of uh, uh, deterrence going on right now, and and it's being tested right now. I think it was just it was yesterday. I think that um, there were um, some missile and rocket attacks on uh, U.S. bases. Um, was it in Syria or in Iraq? Iraq, 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 and. This deterrence equation, I think, is is being tested again. And somebody, uh, you know, famously said that uh, you know the use of deterrent force uh, represents the failure of deterrent power. So you know, it could be that um, you know the the movement of 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 these assets around and the messages is enough, or it could be that the U.S. is actually going to have to use force to uh, to try and and keep things on uh, on a lower flame, but time will tell. This is a, a United States posture. That's the principal calculation for Hezbollah. No, I think it's part of, uh, of, uh, of the calculation. Of course, you know, Israel has you know, never assumed in its, in its planning and preparedness that it would only be fighting uh, with the terrorist groups in Gaza. So, you know, it, Israel has always understood uh, in in various scenarios, um, that it would have to fight uh, a multi front war. It's certainly, it's done that in the past. Um, so I, I think going into this uh, in Gaza, and when I think you look at the 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 numbers of soldiers that Israel has mobilized, which right now is uh, somewhere in the range of three hundred thousand, uh, I think that is done um, with an eye toward not just Gaza, but also to the possibility of a northern front opening as well and the israeli uh, the idf chief of staff has been straightforward like you know you shouldn't do this because it's going to lead to uh, your destruction the hezbollah calculation is not just vis-a-vis the united states it's also vis-a-vis israel which you know has obviously prepared for that scenario i don't think the world is prepared for the i don't think the world understands what the hezbollah israel war looks like it's not like it's not going to be a repeat of 2006 it's going to be Many tens of thousands of Lebanese civilians killed. If you think the outcry over the uh, Gaza civilians is uh, is um, is already a significant factor in restraining Israel, I think this is going to be a, a a whole nother level. The weaponry that Hezbollah has is far more lethal. We've already seen that in the in the limited use that they've made of it in the last few days. Uh, so many Israeli soldiers are going to die. Many Lebanese civilians, Israeli civilians are going to die because the Hezbollah has 200,000 rockets and missiles. It's going to hit Israeli civilian centers like never before. And in past Israeli wars, civilian centers were relatively unscathed. Uh, It's going to be a very, very ugly conflict. I'm actually not 100% convinced that Israel wins that decisively uh, because of these factors. I would imagine that the um, intervention, the inclination that... Jonathan, that you've already described of the Americans to, 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 to try to prevent the war from widening, that will lead to an effort to shut this war down quickly. 
So, um, any thoughts you have on those thoughts, on those dark thoughts? I'd uh, love to hear. Uh, here, let me make them a little darker. I think, you know, I agree with you. The and, and some Israeli voices have said, you know, in the past uh, day or two that, you know, a fight with Hezbollah is not the same thing as a fight with Hamas. You know, it is much, much more uh, deadly, much, much more destructive. I think it'll be catastrophically destructive for Lebanon. Um, I think, I don't know how to put a, a percentage on it, but I think a huge part of those uh, Hezbollah rockets and missiles will be will explode in Lebanon. Yeah, and they're and they're placed under villages and apartment buildings. They're under villages and, and uh, homes and and things like that, just like uh, Hamas does by you know militarizing uh, civilian uh, infrastructure and and even people's homes and of course other things that are supposed to be off limits in uh, in wartime. But I also think this isn't an Israel Hamas war or an Israel Hezbollah war. This is all part. These are these are different fronts in a much bigger thing, which is a war where you have uh, the United States, Israel, their Arab allies and partners on uh, on the one side, and you have Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and the other terrorist proxies on the other side. And so this is this is these are these are things that are much much bigger. President Biden obviously traveled to Israel. Uh, he he hugged Prime Minister Netanyahu, who met him on the tarmac, um, and President Herzog. Tell us about the trip, its significance. To my great, I don't want to call it astonishment, but what really raised my eyebrows was reading uh, the, the a couple of days before the tweets from the um, Secretary of State's press pool that he had been closeted with uh, the war cabinet for over seven hours. That's the sort of meeting that goes down in the annals of history. In the books about Israeli-American relations, that deserves a major passage because it's uh, it's really extraordinary. And then, of course, Secretary Blinken immediately afterward announced that the president will be traveling to Israel. Tell us about what the uh, Americans are trying to accomplish and, uh, and, uh, and about that trip. So, first of all, I, I, I agree with you. I think that the transcripts of of those meetings when they're declassified in in 30 or 50 years will be fascinating and i know I'll, you're I'll still very be alive old. jonathan having, i'll be 100 i was going to say having having uh, uh, you know having been around for the assassination of franz ferdinand i'm i'm sure you'll you're looking forward to those being released so you can read them yourself uh, first of all i think the visit was uh, extraordinary. They say it's the first time an American president has visited Israel uh, at war's time. The embrace uh, of Israel that the president has um, has made since uh, October seventh has, uh, I think, has been sincere and uh, has been you know, profoundly appreciated by uh, by Israelis. I think one of the goals, one of perhaps the main goals. Uh, and sort of two goals in one of the visit and of the secretary's work to prepare the visit in advance, including through that lengthy participation in the cabinet meeting, uh, had to deal it's sort of where the war aims, Israel's war aims, and uh, the needs of Palestinian uh, noncombatants come together. And so I think what the U.S. is trying to uh, is trying to do is make sure that Israel in 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 sort of going after its legitimate um, war goals isn't creating uh, or contributing to a 
a larger humanitarian crisis than is necessary. And so I think what they're what what the the United States has been trying to do is find a way to get some humanitarian relief into the population of Gaza. One because they see the value in that for its own sake, but two because I think they understand that that will help Israel continue to to press forward to uh, to you know, to get done what it needs to get done. Before we let you go, Jonathan, um, I just have to make an announcement, and that is uh, that Mike Duran is having an affair. Uh, he and I are on counterbalance on a weekly basis, uh, looking at the world um, from Governor Burgum's uh, approach to national security to uh, to Mario Mancuso on economic statecraft. But if you're particularly interested on the Middle East and Israel, Mike has launched a new podcast with Gadi Taub on uh on the situation um related to israel and it's, it's called israel update on rumble israel update on rumble and it it drops twice a week I, right. I believe and so uh you can uh you can catch mike there as well uh even though i feel like a scorned a scorned uh, well he, he's the lover i'm the spurned i'm the wife i suppose who's been uh, who's been cheated on here but i'll take that um uh and advertise it nonetheless because it's a, I, I listened to the first episode and it was great thank you appreciate that Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. I'm just glad to be here. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you.